0: Hello, excuse me if I can have everyone's attention. Um, as you are f- finishing up those final bites of your uh, l- lunchtime victuals, uh, we're gonna be turning now to the content portion. We have a very special treat here, um, a keynote conversation with uh, Steve Hadley, the former National Security Advisor. Uh, to explain a little bit on the on the structure here, um, is Steve Slick, who you heard from on the panel earlier, and then uh, Michael Allen, uh, who is also very familiar to you, and you'll be hearing from uh, later, as well, um, are going to be leading uh, Steve Hadley through a discussion about uh, a lot of the work that they we did together at the at the National Security Council on questions of policy and intelligence and and the law. Uh, I don't need to go through Steve Hadley's very lengthy and impressive professional bio in any detail. That's uh, known to all of you here, and it's also in your, in your folders. But what I can say, why it's special for me to in particular be up here with, with the three of, uh, three of these guys, and the insight I can give you that doesn't appear in the printed bio is uh, we all became very good friends working together at the National Security Council for President Bush, particularly in, in the uh, second term when, when I joined, and Steve and um, Michael had been there earlier. And one of the, uh, I can say without exception, that I've never worked for a finer human being than Steve Hadley. And it's not just the way that he treated me and the other staff, but the, the culture he created on the NSC. These were stressful times. Our national security policy was facing some significant challenges. We were dealing with a lot of criticism. Um, and there was any number of moments when staff dissension and tension could have really torn things asunder. And that didn't happen. And uh, if anything, it forged us closer in our friendships, and that's why we've all stayed in close touch as friends and others of us, like Juan Zarate here as well, he would will be hearing from. And that really starts at the top. It started, of course, with President Bush, but especially with Steve Hadley, um, who uh, in, in public is known as a kind and decent man, but in private is uh, just the same person. And you would really, you, you, and that's not always the case, we can say that. So um, we, we saw him, uh, his sterling golden character behind the scenes, uh, all sorts of ways when he didn't have to be nice and patient with us. So uh, we're in for a real treat here. Uh, These gentlemen will lead Steve through the discussion, and then we'll have some time for questions from the audience as well. So please join me with a warm round of applause for Steve Hadley and his team.
1: Thanks very much. I think I was asked to kick off, and uh, all I would say to amplify what Will said was Michael and I agreed. conspired to embarrass Steve this afternoon, and uh, testify to all of you what a terrific privilege and uh, treat it was to work for Steve Hadley at the National Security Council. He was not only, uh, if, if a, can you hear me? I get some help with this? Is that
2: any better? Yeah, turn that one off. Let's do a mic check. Can you hear me? Yeah. Michael? Hello? Can, you hear me? can you hear me when I speak? Yours is the only one that's off. Mine's too loud, and yours is not on at all. There we go. Can
1: we get some technical support here, then?
2: Either that or we can get rid of these things and just talk loudly. <coughs> or we do the hand mic. So Does that work?
3: They're working on it back there. Hold on. This
1: may be a short conversation. <laughs> Steve will ask himself questions.
4: Can you hear me? You ready? Uh, we can't hear your question, but we can hear Steve's answer.
1: <laughs> that may be the best of all worlds. Is that better? Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. So part <clears the>, of <throat> the technical snafu, we'll, we'll get started here. I was asked to kick off, and I did want to amplify what what Will said. Uh, Working with Steve at the National Security Council was a highlight of my professional career. I know Michael feels the same way. Uh, Not only smart, effective, hardworking, but uh, uniformly gracious. uh, And uh, it was just a pleasure to work for you. All that being said. No, you wouldn't like us to say that. Um, we've still been licking our chops, anxious to turn the tables and start asking you some of the hard questions. Um, and so off we go. Uh, we're, mindful, we're mindful of the fact that this is principally an educational event with a large number of students uh, in the audience. We spent the morning hearing from the leaders of our intelligence community, uh, past and present uh, about some, some very significant intelligence issues. Steve brings a, a different perspective as a policymaker. And what we wanted to ask him to start off with was giving us a short primer uh, on the kinds of intelligence support required uh, by a modern president and the points of interface between the intelligence community and the policymaking process. And there's nobody more uh, uniquely qualified to provide that insight than Steve, who served as the Deputy National Security Advisor and then the Secure- National Security Advisor for Steve Hadley. So eight years in the White House and a long career before then Working with uh, our intelligence community. So, Steve?
2: I want to start off with a story, if I can, that will, I think, capture what I think is the case, which is that the intelligence support t- to the policymaker is dramatically, dramatically improved over the time that I've been in government. So, <clears throat> I first came to the Pentagon and then went through the uh, out of the, the uh, graciousness of then Admiral Inman, who was chief of naval personnel at the time, he allowed me to be detailed over to the National Security Council and I arrived there in July of, two th- of, of, uh, of 1974 as a Navy Ensign and I was told, never tell anybody you're in the service and certainly don't tell them your rank because you won't have any influence with anybody. Uh, So I showed up there, and one of the first things I was given was to prepare for a presidential decision about the size of the Navy and the Navy budget. And, of course, the size of the Navy is always driven by the number of carrier battle groups you're going to have. And I heard that the CIA was preparing an interagency intelligence study on the Soviet Navy. And so I thought, gee, we ought to have that for the president to read before President Ford makes a decision on the size of our Navy. So I found out the name of the person who was in charge of that process. I called him up, I said, you know, the president's having a meeting in 10 10 days and is gonna decide the size of the US Navy, and I understand you have this study, is there any way we can get it to the president before the meeting so he can have it as an input to his deliberations? And the person rather harshly said that the current schedule called for it to be ready in 60 days, Mm -hmm. and it would be ready in 60 days. And if I was good, I would get a copy in the mail. <laughs> um, now that's that's sort of the situation as I found it in 1974. I'll give you something now where we ended up um, in the second term when I was National Security Advisor. Uh, every other Saturday or so, Mike McConnell, then the DNI, would meet. And Mike would have the schedule of articles to appear in the president's daily brief for the next three weeks. And we would go over that schedule and lay it against the schedule of National Security Council meetings where the president is making policy decisions, his travel schedule, uh, his meetings with foreign leaders so that the pieces of the, the articles in the PD would come in right before the president had need of them because he was either conduct a major interagency meeting or go on a trip or meet with a senior leader. The The effort by the intelligence community became so refined that we were really knitting up the intelligence and policy process in real time through that mechanism. And I just think that's a metaphor of where this community has come over the last four decades that I've been observing it in terms of support to the policymaker. For those who have not been in the government, that comes in various forms. We talked a lot about the intelligence briefing that the president gets every morning. A version of that is also, in terms of the National Security Council, goes to the senior directors in the National Security Council. Also, the other principals of the National Security Council Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Vice President they get. Aversion as well. So it is a fairly comprehensive daily input to the policymakers at senior levels. Um, Every paper that is prepared that comes to senior policymakers will have an intelligence section that describes the situation that we are trying to address through a series of policy options. Almost every National Security Council meeting, this is where the President sits down with the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, his principal National Security Advisors. And every principal's committee meetings, which is the same cast of characters but without the President, usually began with an intelligence officer standing up and setting the context for the policy problem we were about to address. And finally, there is a wealth of intelligence publications that come to senior policymakers, it is overload times two, and it's actually a risk, <clears throat> and it's a problem that the intelligence community, in a way, has the policymakers because there's so much information that came to me, uh, stacked up on my desk, intelligence reports on every conceivable international issue, that the intelligence community could always say, "You, t- we told you." But my answer lamely was, I never had enough time in the day to read it all. And that's a problem. And that's a problem. It allows the intelligence community to say, we did our job. And I would say, as the policymaker, no, you didn't. Because you didn't provide the information in a context where it was usable from a policymaker, given the realities of how the policymakers have to conduct their day. And I think there is still more work to be done on that particular aspect. There's one other thing, and I'll stop that. I want to I want to frame up because I think it'll be a topic in this conversation. You know, for a long time, the intelligence community has had the intelligence analysts, and then the operational people, the people do clandestine things and covert <coughs> actions and the like. The intelligence community, I think, has always felt they're supposed to treat speak truth to power. They're supposed to Describe the world and its risks and warn and that is a terribly important function But the policymaker has to take that information and decide what we do with it in order to try to achieve national objectives and on that there's only really a part of the intelligence community who views that as part of their job and it's the clandestine service particularly when you talk about covert actions that could help advance U.S. policy objectives. And I think one of the challenges, and some people like John McLaughlin can talk about this afternoon, is can we get the intelligence analysts more into the fight, if you will? That is to say, yes, identify risks, provide their best information and judgments to the community, but also can they identify opportunities to advance our national interests and can they help us develop the options and ideas that will allow us to take advantage of those opportunities and mitigate risks. There are perils in that because once you get on the policy side, you begin to get invested in the policy and that begins to skew how you see the intelligence. But I think it is a challenge and one of the things that we'll talk about later is something that Mike McConnell championed about how to try to cross that bridge without undermining the objectivity of the analysts when they're acting as analysts. So as a tee up for the conversation, I think we'll stop there. Uh,
3: Steve, I wanted to to see if we couldn't address a little bit about the way you and President Bush reacted after 9-11. One of the principal criticisms of the 9-11 commission, which didn't report until July 2004, was that it didn't take into account all of the innovations and changes that had occurred post 9-11, and so I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about how President Bush saw intelligence, how he was briefed on it, and how it changed after the calamitous events
2: in September 2001. Um, there was a, a lot that was done, and it quite allowed the, uh, the Congress to, I think, build on that in developing the statute so people have talked about uh, the responsibility of the FBI now is really part of the and I'm sorry about the echo here I don't know if we can get rid of, rid of it it's annoying um, uh, that they need to become part of the process that was countering terrorism I think we're going is this better less echo good um, so when people have talked about how the FBI is now really part of the intelligence community and part of the effort to keep the country safe against terrorism. And all the things that needed to be done in terms of breaking down the wall between domestic and international intelligence and building those kind of analytical capabilities in the FBI, all of that was done. Literally, um, five days, four days after 9-11, at a meeting at Camp David where the President met with his principals, National Security Principals, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Vice President, to talk about how we were going to respond. I remember he came up to Bob Mueller, um, to John Ashcroft uh, and Bob Mueller who was with him and said, your job has now dramatically changed. Your job is not any longer just to find people who commit crimes, prosecute them, and put them in jail. Your job is to become part of a national effort to protect this country from terrorist attack, to identify attacks in planning and disrupt them before they occur. You guys need to go figure out how to do that mission. Uh, We established something called TTIC. Uh, which was in some sense an effort to do what the NCTC is now doing and John Brennan was very instrumental in standing that up, getting it started uh, and starting to develop some of the operational challenges that would be done, would be required and to be overcome if we were going to fuse this intelligence community into a a single enterprise. So uh, the, the system did respond. Some of the barriers to information sharing began to come down. The issue of uh, the separation of the DCI role, this is the the role of of oversight of the and coordinating the intelligence community from the director of CIA, which is only one of those 16 agencies, that's an issue that was uh, under consideration for some time. Admiral Inman talked about some work that he did in the mid-90s. I was on George Tenet's DCI advisory board. I got off uh, in 1999, and I think I remember a meeting with his senior leadership team and saying, the, international, the intelligence community is gonna have to decide whether it's really gonna be a community or not. And if you're really gonna be a community, you're gonna have to change how you do business, and you're gonna have to separate the role of the DCI, that is the community role, from the role of running the CIA. So this is an issue that had been uh, around uh, a long time, and a lot of people had talked about it. And it says something about reform and new legislations and reorganization. That is to say, I think the most effective reorganizations are those that don't try to start with a blank sheet of paper and redesign the system from the ground up but actually take and harvest, if you will, the thinking and discussions that have been going on for years before about the kinds of reforms that make sense. And when you have a crisis, it's really an opportunity then to to take advantage of all that work and seize the moment to take thoughts and discussions and turn them into reality and change. And that's what I think the legislation was. I think it really built on changes that were already underway after 9-11 and a lot of thinking and discussion that people in the intelligence community had been doing for some time. And I'm gonna run on here for for a moment, but I think there's one other thing I think we have to take from intelligence reform, which I think is terribly important. I found it very interesting today because I've been out of these issues uh, a fair amount over the last 10 years And the question I always had uh, thinking about is, well, is intelligence reform, has it been a success? And I think uh, uh, listening to last night and this morning, the answer is clearly yes. It has been a success. We are better, we are safer at this business. There are still issues. I'm sure there are people this afternoon and tomorrow who will dissent a little bit from that, but I think basically it has been a success in moving us in the right direction in an incremental way, in a way that can be absorbed by the thousands of people who are in this community and affected by these changes. And I think it's very important that we recognize and celebrate this. Why? Because I think we're in a time where of sort of low national morale. You know, we got an economy that really hasn't bounced back the way we wanted. We have a lot of people who are still in pain. We seem to have more problems than we have solutions. And I think Americans are a little discouraged and, this, and a question about whether we as a people and our government in particular can actually solve problems. And the last time in my lifetime when we were that, in, in that state, I think, where the country was in that state was in the early 70s, coming out of the Vietnam War, which many people thought we lost, a very broken military, a president who resigned in disgrace, uh, an economy that was both had high inflation and low growth stagflation, and I think similarly, Americans felt a sort of a crisis in confidence. And we picked, up our, picked ourselves up by our bootstrap, and over the next 30 years, we rebuild our military, we won the Cold War without firing a shot. We absorbed the attack of 9/11, a time when we were told by intelligence community this was first wave of a number of mass casualty attacks, some of which would involve weapons of mass destruction. And it didn't happen because of a lot of the hard work by some of the men and women in this uh, in this room. And then we, we're hit by the financial crisis, the worst financial and economic crisis is the Depression. And it's not perfect, but we got through it. And we did not have an economic meltdown. So the point is, American is a great, America is a great country. Sometimes it succeeds more in spite of its government than because of its government. But sometimes the American people working through their government actually can solve some problems and move the country forward. And it's important for us to hold up some examples of that, I think, for the American people. And I think intelligence reform, in its own small way, is one of those examples. Thank you, Steve. That's
1: terrific. Um, As was discussed in your introduction, you were um, at the side of President Bush uh, through the campaign, uh, through the transition, uh, after he won the election, and for all eight years of his service as president in the White House. We've talked a little bit this morning about agility, about adaptation, uh, about uh, ensuring our intelligence community can meet the current needs of policymakers. Uh, Can you give us a few examples of how intelligence support to the president changed uh, over the eight-plus years uh, you were with him, how his needs changed, and how the community's response uh, changed? And then also, if you wanted to say something about uh, how you regarded the events in 2007, when your director of national intelligence, Mike McConnell, uh, late in the administration, came in and asked the president for uh, new authority uh, over and beyond, or at least clarifying, uh, what was written in the IRTPA. Um, Not an easy decision for you or the president, and uh, maybe you could describe that process for us. Um, So let
2: me start with, uh Executive Order One This is this is kind of the nuts and bolts of how the in, inter, the intelligence community is going to work. So think about it: is if you had the statute of the Intelligence Reform statute the IRTPA, it's the implementing document of how that's going to work in practice. It does a lot of other things, but that's one of the important things. And the heroes of this story, and, and I'm grateful to Jim Langdon for. Pointing out my role in it, but the real heroes of this story are in three other locations, and one of them is Mike McConnell. Uh, Mike comes into the president late in the administration and says, "You know, you ought to re- revise a Reagan-era executive order, um, uh, taking on all the fights that this will provoke within the intelligence community." And the president, who's you know low in the polls and you know got wars to fight, and soon will have a financial crisis to deal with says, Mike, do I really need to do this? And Mike says, yes, Mr. President, you do, because it is required to institutionalize the intelligence reform that is an important part of your legacy. And and the President says, Mike, do you know what we're going to do? And Mike says, yes, I do, Mr. President. I've got a plan for what I think needs to be done. And it was the President's confidence in Mike that caused him to go ahead and say, let's do it. So Mike was the architect of the substance of it. My job was to run a process, which we did. But I found that if I was going to have to run a process, I wanted the President of the United States visibly in my corner. And um, I'll tell you one story. I became National Security Advisor, and I met with the press for the first time. And they all, in a very nice way, said, you know, how are you, Steve Hadley, mild-mannered reporter from a local newspaper. I'm being facetious. How are you, Steve Hadley, going to manage these 600-pound gorillas? Condi Rice, Don Rumsfeld, you know, Dick Cheney. How are you going to knock heads and get them on the same page? And I said, I have no intention of knocking heads because I'm 20 paces from the 1,200-pound gorilla. And if we have some disagreements, we're gonna walk down to the Oval Office, we're gonna to talk to the president. He's a guy who loves to make decisions and he's gonna decide them. And this is an example of that. So we said, Mr. President, we're gonna need th- do this, we're gonna need your help. And so the president says, you have it. He did three things. One, he empowered the, ev- the effort and made it clear it wasn't Mike's initiative, it wasn't my initiative, it was his initiative. Secondly, he met with the team the Asian team that was put together to do it, and he did two things. He said three things, really. One, this is my initiative. Second, if you get disagreements, bring them up to me, I'll decide them, and bring them quickly, because three, he imposed a deadline. I want it done by X date. And the last thing he did, which was equally important, is he used the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, then called the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, He used that as an outside check and prod on the system because they were a supporter of this uh, initiative. Uh, They had some views as to how it needed to be done, and they met periodically with the president just to keep it on his agenda and give him a little report card on how Mike and I were doing. That was a good formula, and it's, it's actually a process that worked well, and it worked well in large measure because the people in place... Mike Hayden, Mike McConnell, Bob Gates and others were all people who had worked together, they were professionals, they knew their business and they were willing to make the process work by their personal involvement. Steve has written a very nice article about this. I think if you despair on whether government can ever work and get something hard done, read that article. It will reassure you that it can be done. We did a number of other things. I'll tell you one thing, in the 2004 election, there was in the White House a view that members of the intelligence community were leaking information to the press in order to try to undermine President Bush's efforts for re-election. I don't know whether that was true or not, but it was the perception in the White House. And this is a problem, because the president needs to have a relationship of mutual trust and confidence as an intelligence community. So one of the things we, Mike Hayden and Mike McConnell and I decided to do is we needed the president to be able to put a face to these intelligence analysts. So we started a practice whereby people who had prepared intelligence items for the president's morning intelligence briefing would come in and brief the president personally so he could see them. They would have a face on these items. And he would push them and he would ask questions. He was not politicizing intelligence. He was not trying to get them to change their view. And he would say at the end, "Now I know I pushed you pretty hard. I'm not trying to get you change your views at all. I just want to understand why you believe what you believe and with what conviction you believe it, because that'll tell me how much I should rely on it." It was a very constructive process. Another thing we did, you know, when presidents get and information that says you have a problem, the first thing the president wants to do is say, so how am I gonna solve it? And in the morning intelligence briefing, it was always the vice president, the chief of staff, me, and intelligence people, the DNI, the DCIA, none of his senior policy people. So the president had a temptation to get the intelligence report and then say, so what are we doing about it, Hadley? And I decided this was a pretty lonely place to be. So we started something which I think was very effective. On Wednesday of every week, we would save those intelligence items that we thought would, were not time sensitive and that would provoke a policy discussion. And we invited the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, others as necessary, sometimes Secretary of the Treasury. And we would, they would all take the intelligence briefing and then we would have a preliminary policy discussion so the president would have a sense of what was being done and what could be done, and then we would take that into the policy process. I think it worked in a very effective way. On Tuesday, we had what we called Counterterrorism Day. One, I think it was Tuesday, uh, and then we would have the Attorney General, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI Director, the domestic side of counterterrorism. We'd all get the intelligence briefing. And then the president could ask those people responsible for responding to the intelligence what they were doing and could push them a little bit if they weren't being active enough. And finally, on Thursday, we would have uh, CIA operational day. Um, Mike Caden, then the CIA director, would come. Small group, but he would brief the president on covert actions that were going on. And it resolved one of the issues that was involved in the creation of the DNI as to whether the covert action capabilities would report to the DNI or would report to the director of CIA. And the president resolved that by saying he wanted the director of CIA and he wanted the director of CIA to be able to report to him directly about covert actions in the same way he likes his military officers to be able to report directly to him on military plans. DNI was present, DNI had oversight of that process, <clears throat> but the operational chain was Director CIA to the President. I think it worked well. I think it worked well. Um, I think those were the principal things. Steve, you were there part of it. Anything else I missed on Michael or Steve in terms of the innovations? No, I think that's
3: right. I, I, Steve, I wanted to, Steve, I wanted to push you a little bit um, on something you referred to, and that was the importance of the people that you had in each particular job, the Secretary of Defense and the rest. I mean, I think it's, we've heard a lot this morning about the DNI has been a success and budget authority and and the rest. I mean, I think it's worth noting we had four DNIs in the first five years of its creation. There was a fair amount of turbulence at the beginning of the Obama administration about lanes in the road of who does what, CIA versus DNI. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about how these conflagrations can occur if you don't have the right people in the job and whether you ultimately think we're moving steadily down a path where the DNI is actually going to initiate or bring to fruition programs that make us safer.
2: I think uh, Jim Clapper had it right. There are no perfect organizational structures their improved organizational structures. I think intelligence reform and changing of one, two, triple, three gave us an improved structure. But at the end of the day, it's people that make it work. And uh, I think the trick on making this DNI, DCIA, the community person and then the CIA director, the trick to make it work is people, people in those positions that are professional, that have their ego in mind and are focused on the mission and responsive to the president. And we were blessed to have those in Mike McConnell and Mike Hayden. And if you do, the system can work. You can help it work. I used to meet uh, sometimes once, sometimes twice a week with the DNI, once with the DNI, and then once with the DNI and the director of CIA. And my question in the second session was always, so how you guys doing? And are there problems? And they were wonderful colleagues, and they would say, we're doing well, or we have this problem. And I would say, how are you gonna fix it? And you know, can I help you fix it? Um, and that process, I think, worked well. I'm a big supporter of the DNI for the reasons that were said this morning. Despite their best efforts, DCIAs, when, they, when the community role and the CI role were in one person, The community role never got done. The demands of being CIA director are too strong. Uh, And a a recent CIA director said to me, you know, I'm the biggest proponent of the DNI there is. I said, why is that? He said, because it allowed me to concentrate full time on managing the CIA. And in these times, it requires it. So I uh, I think it's good. And uh, I guess the question I would put to you, both of you, is if you were king and could rewrite the legislation, would you do it? Uh, Quick answer to that, Steve. My view is
1: uh, no. First, I can't foresee a set of circumstances absent a a major intelligence failure and and, uh, calamity, uh, why the Congress would take up changes to the IRTPA. I think the president has within his authority through executive order and through his relationships with his subordinates um, the capacity to make this model work. Um, There is—I would probably lean towards uh, Mike McConnell's case uh, on a number of those issues we resolved in the executive order uh, coordination, uh, give him a slightly stronger hand. Uh, but I wouldn't favor legislation. I don't think it's necessary. I think this is a generational, a cultural change that has to happen within the intelligence community. It is happening a little more slowly than I would like, Uh, but I think uh, as this new generation uh, takes command of intelligence activities, and as um, more and more people in the intelligence community learn what goes on outside the gates of their headquarters compound, uh, we're going to be just fine, and we're going to end up with a more effective, collaborative, more closely integrated intelligence community.
3: Um, I, I certainly wouldn't try and reopen uh, the Intelligence Reform Act. Um, you know, I, when I studied what happened in 2004, I was sort of fond of saying there was not one but two intelligence failures in a three-year period, you had a nationally prominent 9-11 Commission that commanded the national media for many, many months and more or less had incredible influence. You had an almost entirely united Senate and all, with all of these factors going in your direction, an active group of, of family members who had been harmed on 9-11, with all of these factors pushing for a maximalist d position. The Intelligence Reform Act of 2004 is all you got, and short of some other amazing uh, uh, development, I can't see a legislative effort that tries to retinker with this. Um, I heard Lee Hamilton say when, once, and I sort of agree with that sentiment, and it's that the person that it can strengthen the DNI is the President of the United States, not just through executive orders, but really to put his arm on him and say to he or she, here are the three or four things that I want you to work on and I've got your back and I'm expecting the results. And that sort of infuses the DNI with the authority to perhaps move recalcitrant bureaucracies, be it behind a new joint duty program or an insider threat program or an information sharing system that's gonna enable us to get the right information to the right people at the right time. So I'm not ready to open up the legislation and go through that again. Um, I think we ought to, uh, I think the presidents of the future need
2: to strongly support the system we've got and see if we can't make it work. I want to mention one other thing we did, and again, Mike McConnell was the hero on this one. I mentioned earlier about is there a way without undermining or compromising the objectivity of the intelligence analysts, is there a way to harness their expertise not only to identify problems and risks, but also develop opportunities, identify opportunities and help develop strategies to take advantage of them? Um, And one of the ways we tried to do this was to take people. There had always been intelligence officers serving on the NSC staff, but they usually had an explicit policy position. That is to say, they left their intelligence hat at their home agency. They took a spot on the National Security Council staff and they just basically did policy. We came up with a hybrid. We had some people who came to the NSC staff, were put in the regional and functional directorates. They were still intelligence people and we wanted them to have reach back to their agency, but they were no longer intelligence analysts. They were part of the directorate to try to identify opportunities and to develop options to achieve national objectives. Mike was a strong supporter of this. We put it into place and implemented it. I think it enriched the policy process. It was done in such a way that it did not compromise the analysis that was getting to the president. From the CIA. And I think it gave terrific exposure to young intelligence officers of what the needs of the policymaker are. And I think that is invaluable. Mike Hayden will tell you that one of the most useful rotations he had as an intelligence officer is when he worked for the late Arnie Canner on the NSC staff under President George H.W. Bush, 41, because he really saw what the life of the policymaker was like and it made him better able to support it. I think that kind of exposure is, is good for in de- developing intelligence officers, and it's also good because it gets some of these terrific intelligence officers in on the policy fight of trying to meet the challenges we face and advance the cause of the country. Thanks, Steve. I'll just offer a postscript on
1: that program Steve described uh, that we implemented with Mike's support. It was called the NSC Fellows Program. Uh, First, I'd say, with respect to the officers who volunteered to take this very unconventional role at some career risk, very often without the support of their uh, agency heads, uh, they were superb, highly motivated, expert, and were invaluable, including over in Michael's Counterproliferation directorate in advancing the president's policy agenda. They all went on, went back to their agencies to very senior jobs and terrifically impactful careers. So it seems to have worked out well for them. Uh, and then the last postscript note I'd give you is that that program was not continued. It doesn't exist today, but it was an experiment that we ran for two or two and a half years and I thought proved its worth. Uh, we're going to open it up for questions now. I think we've got about 15 minutes, so Steve and the rest of us are anxious to to hear from you. If you just put your hand up if you wish to ask Steve a question.
4: I see we have a gentleman back here in the corner. Uh-oh. Thank you. Uh, Thank you all for doing the panel. Appreciate it. Uh, Steve, I wonder if you can talk for Peter, a minute.
2: You, you, you need, in the interest of full disclosure, to identify yourself.
4: Uh, <laughs> uh, my name is Peter Baker. I'm from the New York Times. Um, uh, Steve, you talked about the necessity, necessity of having a relationship of trust between the president and his DNI, which also would apply to the CIA. I wonder if you can talk about the different models, though, of how far that should go, because you, we've seen different models over the years. Jim's, Jim Woolsey was. CIA director so frustrated, apparently, he couldn't see President Clinton enough that when a small plane hit the White House, they joked it was Woolsey trying to get an appointment. Um, President Obama currently has a former CIA director he might wish had gotten less access on the book trail right now. With you all, the discussion was about George Tenet. David Kaye says he talked to President Bush after the Iraq uh, weapons search, that one issue he had with it was Tenet had moved from an intelligence provider to the policymaking circle that he'd gotten to inside President Bush's orbit. And I wonder if you can talk about that. Do you feel that way today? Do you feel there's a line to be drawn? And where is that line uh, today?
2: I think there's a line to, to be drawn, and I think George always drew it in the right place. I will tell you that. Um, you know, the CIA director and others can talk about it this afternoon, and you can ask them. But Jim Woolsey used to say the CIA director is a very vulnerable position. Now, I'm not a big football person, but he says, it's like the cornerback on a football team. The only person between you and the goal line is the safety. And if you make a mistake, the safety's got to pull you out. Well, he said, CIA director is like the cornerback, and the president is the safety. If I make a mistake, and the president doesn't back me, I'm toast. So this, and and secondly, the president is the principal consumer at some level of intelligence. So there's got to be a a relationship of trust. But that part of that relationship of trust is that the CIA director or the DNI will tell the president like it is. Because while presidents don't like bad news, they know that there that there is no substitute for getting it and getting it early, because bad news does not get better with age. So part of that relationship of trust is that the president has the CIA director or the DNI's back, but the CIA director and the DNI will tell truth to power. That's part of the deal. In terms of the policy process, you know, when you'd have, I, I had another thing I did. I had a. Tuesday afternoon meeting in the National Security Advisors Office just with the NSC principals without the President. Vice President, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, DNI, Director of CI, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, my is a note taker. I served them soft drinks, pretzels, corn chips, and warm cheese dip. Why did I do that? Because in the afternoon people get cranky and if you give them a little food it improves their mood and interagency cooperation actually gets better. <laughs> and, and we would deal all with all the difficult issues. And there, as in subsequent principles and NSC meetings, the CIA director would say, I'm the intelligence guy. I'm giving you my intelligence. Now you're asking, and I would say, fine, George, that's great. What do you think we ought to do? You've been looking at all the intelligence. You've got this great building of people. What do you think we ought to do? And George would always say, stepping out of my role, here's what I think we ought to do. I think you can manage that. And I think you need to manage that because the CIA director and the DNI are enormous resources to help you think through how to handle these problems. I know George has that rap. I spent a lot of time with George Tennant. I thought he handled his responsibilities admirably. I want to mention one other thing before we adjourn. We can talk about uh, what intelligence community needs to become. I've got some views about that. Flatter, more agile, more integrating, not destroying stovepipes, but integrating across stovepipes, empowering and enabling these young men and women who are coming into the service. We've got to do one other thing. Iraq WMD, in my view, was not an intelligence failure. It was a failure of imagination. To my recollection, John, you can correct me, nobody came to me, to the President, and said, Mr. President, what if Saddam Hussein has actually gotten rid of all his weapons of mass destruction, but he doesn't want to make it public because he doesn't want his arch enemy, the Iranians, to know because they may take advantage of it. And some of the debriefing, I've, I haven't read the reports, I've read press reports of the reports. FBI folks say that's exactly what Saddam Hussein said in the debriefings after his caption. Now that's not an intelligence failure, that's an imagination failure. Shame on me, shame on everyone involved in the process. The question is, can we institutionalize out of the box, or as I used to say, assume there's no box kind of thinking. Empowering people to really be imaginative. I think you can. I think that's what red cells, these competitive pieces that analysts were told, do, you know, do an analysis that isn't the intelligence community consensus, but is an alternative analysis of what might be the case. Having ties not just with outsiders, but with outliers, people who we know don't accept the the, uh, consensus. And finally, I think that's one of the opportunities for the DNI, who's not briefing the president, who can sit back, look over all of the intelligence, and have that question, always asking the question, what are we missing? What are we missing? Because I think we've got to find a way how do you how you can institutionalize that. Terrific, I think we have a few more minutes for questions.
1: Hands up. Will, shoot. Sure. I'll just do it from here and you can repeat it. Great. Uh, Steve, we heard Admiral McConnell's
0: perspective earlier on declassifying the summary of conclusions for the 2007 Iraq new uh, NIE. Could you give us the White House perspective, the discussions you and the President had
1: about deciding to declassify that? I mean, for, the, for those... For those of you who didn't hear, uh, Will was following up on a discussion earlier this morning where uh, the 2000, fall 2007 NIE on Iran's nuclear program was discussed. As you heard this morning, the president took a decision to declassify the key judgments. Uh, that was a controversial decision, caused you know, a great deal of uh, sturm and drang uh, in various systems, including some foreign capitals. And Steve was present, and so we'll ask for his view on that.
2: The president was absolutely right, and Mike had it right this morning. The problem was that prior national intelligence estimates on Iran, the key judgments, had been declassified and had been briefed to the Congress. And if we did not declassify this, week, this one, when it got to the Congress, we were very confident that people in the, Cong- in the Congress would say, this is Bush administration manipulating intelligence. Because you said publicly Iran did have a weapons progr- program, CIA now says that they've stopped their weaponization and effort, and you don't wanna tell the American people about it because it undermines your policy position. You're manipulating intelligence for policy purposes. And that's what put us in the soup, and that's why it. The key judgments had to be declassified. The problem Mike had was it wasn't prepared with an eye towards making it public. So it didn't say clearly there are three elements to the Iran program, nuclear materials, weaponization, and launch vehicles, i.e. missiles, and they've only stopped one of them. The other two are public and they're going forward as we speak. That wasn't in the document loud and clear. So then the dilemma I had was, do I say to Mike, Mike, can you revise the document and put that in now that it's gonna come public? Sounds very sensible, right? Very sensible thing to do. Can you imagine when that got to Peter Baker's desk? (laughs) The National Security Advisor is rewriting the interagency agreed NIE. So, you know, sometimes you're just stuck. And we were stuck. And uh, we we decided we could not change it. We made it public. I was then sent out to the press to make a feeble effort to say what we should have said if we had done it right, and I uh, didn't do very well uh, on that. But you know, some of these situations, you know, there's no good answer. On balance, I think we did the right thing because, in the end, end of the day, the American people and the Congress. Were we were informed of the best judgment of the intelligence community, and that's what we owe them. So it weren't pretty, uh, and a lot of us had a lot of egg on our face, but I think it was the right thing to do.
1: Thanks. We'll try one more question here before the clock strikes zero. Uh, We have a gentleman in shirt sleeves in the back center here. Can we get him a microphone?
5: Great. Clapper was talking earlier today. He talked about uh, the difference between um, finding secrets out and looking for mysteries. Uh, I was wondering, with you know your background as a policymaker, what you thought the appropriate balance was when you receive analysis. You want just the information, or you're looking for a way of predictive analysis from uh, intelligence analyst?
2: I didn't give me the last part of that again. I'm sorry. sorry
5: um, when Director Clapper was talking, he talked about the difference between you know finding out secrets and mysteries and. secrets being information the mysteries being more predictive analysis, and how we saw that things that were considered intelligence failures were failures to be more predictive. Um, So I was wondering, as a policymaker, what you thought the appropriate balance was in the things you get as far as do you want more predictive analysis or do you just want the information reported to you as is? i I give you this response.
2: One of the questions is how you define secrets. And it's one of the problems with the intelligence community. Uh, I love the intelligence community, and I have great respect for it. But I sometimes think that they think that the only things that are really authoritative are things that they've stolen. And I give you an example. So the President of the United States has been, he's now late in his second term, he's been dealing with the Iraqi problem in Maliki for a long time. And he gets a PDB item that says something like this. I'm not disclosing anything, it's, it's something like this. A second level functionary in the, the Iraqi uh, uh, Defense, let's assume Defense Department, talking with a second level functionary in the Foreign Affairs Department, says that Maliki will not sign the agreement allowing US forces to stay there until 2013. And the President gets this and says, look it, I'm talking to the man every other week on a secure video and he tells me I want this agreement. So what am I supposed to make of this? and I think it shows a problem. One is there's a lot of information or intelligence coming from interactions of senior government officials with their counterparts that that intelligence analysts never see because we're too worried that the transcripts will leak. Well, that's making our intelligence community do their job with one hand tied behind their back. That's a problem we never solved. David Shedd and I tried an arrangement. It didn't really work. Secondly. It's not about intelligence anymore. It's about information. And there's a huge amount of information out there. You know, big data, social media, all the rest, and the challenge for the intelligence community is to move past intelligence towards harnessing information and then being able to process and analyze it in a sensible way. Third, those are issues that uh, deal with the first thing that that Jim Clapper was talking about, you know, basically, Uh, on things we don't know. Mysteries is harder. And I think mysteries, the only way you can, and I think you can't have a pass on mysteries. Because the biggest mystery quite frankly is what senior leaders in countries like North Korea and Iran think, or Vladimir Putin think. That's the hardest intelligence target there is. I think in mysteries you have to use some imagination. And that's why I use the example about the Iraq WMD. We have to institutionalize there is no box, imaginative thinking to try to be, begin to triangulate on the mysteries. And I don't think it's an issue of a lot of resources and money. I think it's an issue of getting uh, the right people with the right mindsets in small groups sitting together and batting things around. And these are all the fun- frontiers. You know, I think it's a wonderful time to be an intelligence officer. Uh, I think there are enormous challenges out there, yes, but you've got a set of colleagues that have never been better. And the information resources available to you have never been greater. And so I would urge people, stay in those careers, get in those careers. It will be enormously challenging, satisfying, and the country really needs you. Thank you very much.